welcome everybody. Andrew Holacek here. Um, I am really excited to be able to spend the next hour or so with uh, really quite a remarkable individual, Jeff Warren. Um, and I'm sure you'll agree with me after we get going that uh, he is indeed remarkable. And so as usual, I will start with a brief formal bio introduction. And then we're just going to jump right in because there is a ton of material that I want to ask Jeff and that we're going to kind of uh, ping pong back and forth. So Jeff Warren is a meditation instructor and journalist celebrated for his dynamic and accessible style of teaching. He is co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. By the way, I have to insert um, one of the most enjoyable and delightful books I read in quite a while, Jeff, really great introduction um, to the topic of meditation altogether. He's also the author of The Head Trip, uh, Adventures on the Wheel of Consciousness, which is what we're going to focus on, at least initially, The Travel Guide to Sleeping, Dreaming, and Waking. He's also the founder of the Consciousness Explorers Club, a nonprofit meditation adventure group based in Toronto. His mission is to empower people to take responsibility for their own mental health, through the realistic, intelligent, and sometimes irreverent exploration of meditation and personal growth practices. So Jeff, thank you, uh, my friend, for taking the time out of your busy schedule, writing down there in Costa Rica, as I understand it, um, to chat with us today. We're really excited to have you on board. I'm very happy to be here. And I am every bit as excited to chat with you as apparently you are with me. So we, uh, cool. when I was researching you and looking at your work, I even have your dream yoga at home. It's uh, um kind of my two passions you know this feels like this conversation is an opportunity to kind of connect my interest in dreaming and the dream world with uh, meditation and consciousness more broadly so very excited yeah yeah awesome so so yeah let's let's just jump, jump right into it but i want to start with with what in some ways was a kind of a an overview summary statement when when i read head trip which by the way i really enjoyed there were a couple um sections in that book that just really stood out for me. And I, I will highlight a couple of these and one or two of them I'm going to kind of send your way for, for um, topics for a discussion. But you say something here that I thought was really completely in resonance with um, what we are doing with our little adventure called Nightclub. And uh, I'm going to read it with just a few little comments as, go, as I go through it as a way to launch into this. And then uh, we can really get going. So this is what you say early, relatively early on in the book. I came to realize that in a number of important ways, in order to understand day consciousness properly, night is the best place to start. The forces that shape dreaming consciousness do not suddenly vanish when the sun rises. Rather, they go underground and wield their mysterious influence from below. Day mirrors night in ways few people appreciate. Once you acquire this slightly eerie holistic perspective, it becomes very hard to shake, end quote. And I wanted to just toss in a couple insertions, and then we can use this as a seed for, for launching in. You know, it's a, you say here, in order to understand day consciousness properly, night is the best place to start. First of all, I couldn't agree more with you, um, and especially if we say night slash darkness, because um, as you well know, um, Darkness precedes light in so many ways. You know, um, the before prior to the Big Bang, the flash that gave birth to this uh, universe conjectured was the silent darkness. You know, we seeds arise 
in germinate uh, the darkness on the underground. In the book of Genesis, um, darkness precedes light. Um, we were probably conceived in the dark, spent nine months in the dark, and then literally came into the world from it. And um, as you probably know, in the wisdom traditions, in particular here, I'm referring to Vajrayana Buddhism and, and Shaiva Tantra, they both assert that uh, so-called waking consciousness is is uh, an epigenetic um, or an epiphenomenal expression of these more um, subtle, darker states. And even Matthew Walker, uh, a neuroscientist in his best-selling book, Why We Sleep, goes so far as to conjecture in, in one part of his book that even from a neurobiological uh, point of view, that sleep is uh, perhaps the primordial um, foundational state and that in many ways we have to sleep to recover the damage created <laughs> through the waking arena. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And then finally, and then I'll, I'll let you respond to this, is you say day mirrors night in few ways appreciate. I think um, I, would, I would actually go so far as to say that day influences um, and even is controlled by night. Um, in other words, just like you're saying in this quote, these underground forces that are revealed in the, kind of the nocturnal adventure, they still continue to exert their influence on, again, our so-called waking state. You know, backstage really always runs on stage. And so I, I just wanted to toss that out as an overarching um, statement of, of resonance with what you did with this remarkable book and what we can start to talk about. Um, and so before I turn this over into this more uh, formal dialogue, I always start with a personal question is what role have dreams played for you in your own personal journey in your own life? And what um, place do dreams still um, maintain for you in, in your own journey? So lots of stuff to send the volley in your court for the first time. Yeah. Uh, wow. That is so I'm so glad that you picked up on that. That's uh, uh I mean, it's, there's so much to unpack in that theme. Um, and it's interesting talking about this now because I sort of had these two different periods of my life. You know, there was the period of writing and researching Head Trip, which was 15 years ago now, when I was really on top of the dream literature and I was paying a ton of attention to my dreams. And there's a lot I can say about that. And then I kind of, as that book finished, I went through actually kind of a challenging period of my life and, and I was really getting deep into meditation practice. And now meditation kind of has ballooned to become this all-encompassing thing in my life. It's what I do as a career, which I had no idea that would be the case when I wrote Head Trip. It's where so much of my thinking happens. So this is an opportunity to kind of bring those two together in a way. Um, and what I would say is that, you know, I'd always been interested in consciousness, but from the youngest there was always a dreamlike quality to it for me. And it was always a real attraction to the dream world for me. I mean, I remember having my, I had an old Omni magazine. I don't know if you remember Omni magazine. Oh, totally. Oh, absolutely. Bob, Bob Giuccioni's uh, magazine. Yeah. That, I love that magazine. It was, uh, it yeah. was my kind of like, you know, it was sort of a, if, had people, if your viewers don't or your listeners don't know it, it's sort of this, it was sort of a pop science kind of like slightly psychedelic, um, I would interesting to be looking at some old issues now, but it was, and it, it was a great magazine and it had a whole issue on lucid dreaming. And I remember being about 13 or 14 years old and yep. sitting down and really 
trying, like learning how to lucid dream, like practicing lucid dreaming, practicing all of the techniques. I can't even remember the exact ones that they shared then. And I, would, I had my first few sort of lucid dreams. I had it, many experiences being young of just lying in my bed and trying to kind of send my consciousness out and imagine what infinity was. And I would go into these strange sort of like dreamlike trances. And um, I was also very obsessed with <clears throat> trying to understand when consciousness moved from waking into sleeping. Like I got completely, my whole life I've been trying to pay attention to that point. And because I remember being a very young kid and being at a sleepover with a friend and my friend, maybe I was in grade three or something. And my friend just instantly fell asleep. It was the first time I realized I don't ever do that. You know, I'm awake for at least an hour to just lying in my bed and noticing my mind and trying to figure out what's going on. That was, you know, only then that I realized that that was kind of like a weird thing. So the, so being interested in dreams, looking at dreams have, was kind of my foundational way into being interested in the mind. And it was very natural that I ended up working on a book about it. And as I was working on that book, I had, you know, I was, exploring hypnagogia, I was exploring lucid dreaming, I was exploring regular dreaming, I was exploring slow wave sleep, I was exploring the state, the watch. I mean, I was doing, what I was learning was that that this monolithic idea of uh, one eight hour chunk of sleep and then we're awake is just this sort of, um, uh, that's just this crude illusion that a mind that hasn't spent much time paying attention to it kind of labors under. And that when you actually turn your gaze to the, to the, the night, to the darkness, as you put it, you start to see things get very finely elaborated into many very different forms of cognition and experience um, that, as you say, I think are fundamental to how waking consciousness operates. And I have a whole new perspective on that from being a meditation teacher because yeah. I spend so much time going in and sharing my focus as a teacher is, is really about helping people understand what their inner experiences and hearing reports. And so I hear a lot about people's descriptions of um, image consciousness in like versus language consciousness, uh, which I can go right into. And I see that image consciousness as being basically the kind of primordial dream life uh, that is there that just becomes, you know, when we fall asleep, the sensory input gates close, but there's still this very vivid, uh, more actually it's more top down, uh, influences from our schemas and whatever else, the internal everywhere that come to the fore. I mean, there is so much to talk about here, dude. <laughs> so, yeah, no kidding. Um, yeah, I, I mean, again, I couldn't re I couldn't agree more with you, and it's one of the really delightful aspects of your book, and maybe I can ask you to give just the briefest overview for, for our listeners, because I really want to direct them to this book. But what really struck me about it, many things, one, to elaborate on what you just said, is part of what we do with our, our kind of nightclub charter is um, in a certain sense, it's replacing this, um, the metaphor, the analogy I use is, uh, you know, the West has this kind of crude light switch model of mind consciousness. You know, it's either awake or asleep, um, dead or alive, black, white, yes, no. And like you mentioned, that that's a really kind of crude, un, untrained way to relate to mind and reality. And so what um, we do with our nightclub, and this is uh, something I've experienced in my own journey for some four decades now, is we replace this light switch with a dimmer, where it, it's not just yes, no, uh, alive, dead, wake, asleep. No, in, in a highly trained mind, and this may, may seem just an outrageous assertion, 
for especially Western um, scientists, the you know, in the mind of an awakened one, a, a Buddha from any tradition, that mind really never turns off. Um, there are a few kind of photons, uh, quote unquote, of awareness that are left on. In, in the literature, you know, upon Cole's reading is replete with accounts of awakened ones who, who literally just, um, the light of awareness stays on, this kind of tacit awareness, even in the deep dreamless state, which by the way, Jeff, is being studied by a couple of uh, really eminent neuroscientists uh, as we speak, Giulio Tononi and others. Um, oh, yeah. You know, the, yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a few photons of consciousness. And so, yeah, exactly. And your book was completely resonant with that. It's like, whoa, you know, this is the same thing. And so give us a little bit um, of an overview, if you would, of, of the wheel of consciousness um, and how that has played out for you um, actually in your own life. I mean, you're suggesting that already, but tell us, give us an overview of the book altogether, because you cover so much in this book, um, which, by the way, is really um, beautifully Illustrated. I love the drawings, and I think even more beautifully referenced. You did a, you did your homework on this one. So give us a little bit over the overview of the book itself. Yeah, uh, well, I'm happy to. Um, it's uh, it's fun to talk about this here because it's been like 15 years. Cool. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, the first thing to say is, and this may sound like a strange place to start, is I was officially diagnosed with attention deficit disorder after I finished the book. <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, the reason I say that is I had no, I had an enormous curiosity and no sense of, uh, of boundaries when I was researching this. So I was interested in trying to come up with a basic uh, taxonomy of all the most fundamental ways we're aware through 24 hours. Mm -hmm. um, and that wasn't a taxonomy that I had could find anywhere in the literature. I came from a English literature background. I wasn't a science. I was a journalist, and but I was really into into science. And you know, my brother's a neuroscientist, and I'd been around that language my whole life. And I was very comfortable reading science papers. And so I kind of went out to try to. It started with my interest in sleep and dreaming, and I started to see, oh wow, there's lucid dreaming here. There's REM sleep. There's hypnagogia. I started to see how there were different um, kinds of very different states uh, in in the evening. And at night, and I started thinking about waking as well. And so I went out with this idea that in the researching of this book, I'm going to try to see if I can identify the primary waking states as like as places to travel to. As that's the, there's a whole passport metaphor. Like these are states of consciousness that have their own unique phenomenology and their own quality of kind of knowing. And I wanted to articulate what that was and then champion the kind of knowing that was happening in those different states, which yeah. I didn't think was the same as it wasn't, it wasn't, I didn't want to reduce one state to the laws of another. I wanted to kind of try to meet it in its own uh, terms and describe it from the inside as well as from the outside. So the book is both an attempt to describe the neuroscience and the psychology of what is known about these different states, but also more importantly, you know, it, and that really led to my focus on subjective experience. What was my own personal experience of these and then drawing in other people's personal experiences. So, and kind of looking at where those, that two meet. And I didn't know, I was very much groping in the dark. You know, I didn't know, no, I couldn't find this typology anywhere. No one had really put it out like that other than the basic one of waking, sleeping and dreaming that was there within Indian literature. And even in the West, even in Western literature, in the science and psychology and neuroscience, they didn't even talk so much about the big three. I mean, it was 
you keep in mind this, and I know you know this, the science of dreaming was, you know, still, it's, it's still in its infancy, you know, it sort of like started in the 50s. So you have this, so I look into Eastern traditions, I could see there was these three states, and then of course they would talk about Turiya, the fourth, so yeah. I had a chapter on pure consciousness. Um, but that's where I kind of began, and I just went by through into ransacking the literature and, you know, just reading all the journals, and what I was blown away by was that there was no crosstalk, that the world of dreaming, there was nobody in the world of studying dreams who was looking at the world of hypnosis, when, when, when hypnosis was so massively relevant to dreaming. That's right. There was nobody in the, in the, in the, neuro, in the neurofeedback world who was interested in, in the hypnosis world, or in the meditation world who was looking at the dreaming world, or in the lucid dreaming world who was, I mean, first of all, the lucid dreaming world, there were no researchers in the lucid dreaming world except for your friend Stephen LeBurge and mine and a few people, but there was just a handful, you know, and that started in the 80s and into the 90s. So, so there was like, I wanted to kind of try to both identify what the different, these different destinations were in the mind, and then to try to create some understanding of, well, what did they all, were they all, what story were they all, was there something, what was unique about their story and what was, was there a common thread of something they were pointing to? What, what, how could we, what could I learn about dreaming by looking at the hypnosis literature, vice versa? And so that was entered, a massive 500 page book with like 100 pages of references that I can't even believe I ever got finished because I haven't managed to really get anything to that level done since. But I had no, it was because I had no clue what I was getting into. And I had the kind of like, I had the kind of uh, witless optimism of a, <laughs> of, a, of a newbie and a fool in a way. But I'm glad I did because I, I got to, you know, have this big adventure. So, well, no kidding, and it's it's really it 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 harks to the the beauty of the beginner's mind, and and you know totally. Suzuki Bushi says you know there's so much more available for the beginner's mind, and gosh, you you nailed some really important points here for me, Jeff. One is, you know, this the the um the West has this kind of wake centric um, big time bias dominance, you know, which which I argue in in a book I'm writing now is is also related to um, uh, not only wake centricity, but um, it's connected to site centricity, um, photocentricity, all in the service of egocentricity. Yes. And my argument is that the reason this is so is it's fundamentally ego in an untrained mind. Ego is only fully online and operational in the waking state. And so therefore, arrogantly, in, in, you know, in the same way that science exactly. perverts into scientism, it just dismisses um, states it can't experience, and therefore it colonizes and dominates other states of mind and reality it can't fully experience, which is so yeah. naive at best and arrogant um, at worst. And so, what I really appreciate that you do here, and I think you may be even right about it, you know, this kind of um, this naive quest for explanatory dominance that the Western model of mind has, and in the East. Yeah. Um, really, they draw one of the big distinctions between Eastern and Western philosophies of mind is the East draws their descriptions of reality from from all three states, or as you're alluding to, even in, in Shaiva Tantra, Turiya, Turiya Tita, fourth and beyond the fourth. And so it's a much more comprehensive in, in, the, in the language that I'm using, Jeff, and I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, integral theory. That your, your work is really completely in resonance with um, so much of what I'm a uh, kind of pursue with my own study and writing is this integral approach to mind and reality that once we open the aperture of awareness, yeah. then we realize how myopic and constricted and contracted. And, and I'm arguing now why this lust for contraction? Why, in fact, are we so afraid to open our um, um, mind and heart to 
uh, kind of darker dimensions of being. What what's the underlying psychological reasoning for kind of looking at world mind and reality in such a limited, constricted way? Um, and so, like when you said, you, it, it's fear. You know. it's, it's, and, and that's what we did, by the way, we, we, cool. we did a web, we did a webinar just yesterday and I started with your quote um, with, you know, I went like 500 people and we were talking exactly on this topic of fear and how to transcend it, that, you know, that we're afraid of the dark, we're afraid of dimensions of being that we can't fully experience. So maybe run a little bit with that and see how, um, how that has played out in your own life. Well, it's very relevant to me. The, I, I think the um, core, what you're describing there, it has to do with the fear of the unknown. That's it. Uh, that, you know, and that we, uh, it's, we want certainty, you know, because we want to be able to make predictions. And that ended up being the major kind of conclusion I come to in Head Trip is all about how the mind is so, how the waking mind is so governed and the, and the dreaming mind too by our, expectations by our prediction that kind of prediction making capacity we want to make predictions about how reality is going to unfold so we can control what's going to happen that's but right. it's fundamentally out of our control and that's, that's right. we know and so not knowing is terrifying and and the truth is if you open your mind to reality you will be humbled because it is absolutely infinite in all directions and yeah. it is impossible even in an integral framework that's just like that's just this shoddy i mean I, I have a lot of respect for for wilbur's stuff but there's no such thing as an intellectual model that can be filtered up through us that can accurately depict the infinite complexity and variation of what's actually out there that's and right. to be open to that is so terrifying and so humbling that we can't even you know we need to continually just pave everything over with our little models, our little models, our little models, our little models of reality. And interestingly enough, the mind that most does that, the kind of Apollonian, uh, rational, um, sort of silo brain, <laughs> and it, it, that silo brain, basically, the, because the, the, the very beliefs that it holds close, foreclose all those other realities. That's it, right. So it's like in hypnosis, if you're skeptical uh, this is one of the things from literature of hypnosis. If you're skeptical of hypnosis as a phenomenon, yep. you will prevent you'll be prevented from experiencing hypnosis. It's yeah. hilarious. And it's the same with the course of mystical and contemplative understanding. That that's why it's so important. The belief piece of this is so important to begin. And it's not to say you have to believe in something that's so far removed from your experience. Actually, it's the opposite. You have to begin to believe what your experience is showing you that's moment right. by moment minute by minute, as your experience changes, you continually believe in the truth of what you're being shown. And in the believing of the truth of what you're being shown, you expand the bandwidth of what is possible to see. So you move out with your, so your, your, your own beliefs are continually being confirmed by your experience, which in turn is, being, is reinforcing a better view or model. And that's the way you can come, you can expand your mind into approaching more and more, but you have to have this humility and know that. And then psychedelics are big for that. You know, if you ever totally. had any experience with the medicines, it's like, I mean, the main experience for me is always, okay, little beach chimp, you know, <laughs> you are, you think you have all these ideas of what it, you don't know a damn thing. Yeah. And I just, and I'm, it's just like, I get on my knees and I'm like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for showing me that I, and for, and for basically putting me in my place which is in a place of, of humility and gratitude and wonder around, and that's just never gone away. 
Yeah, you know, I'm reminded of Rilke's beautiful quote um, where he says you know, along these lines, um, winning does not tempt that man for this is how he grows by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. And, and this, is, this is what the West doesn't want to do. Yeah, you know, the, the West wants to win. It, it's part of its wake-centric agenda, this kind of um, fear-driven myopic approach to reality. And so, I mean, what you said here is just fantastic. It's, it really is flipping the usual maxim of I'll believe it when I see it with I'll see it when I believe it. Um, and so this is the other thing that, that hides out in the dark. And we have Freud yeah. to thank for bringing this into the Western light of awareness is that our belief systems, and I, I'm trained in clinical hypnosis. I mean, I use it in my clinical practice and it's astounding. Uh, and I know you've done this research yourself. Um, one of the best chapters in your book, by the way, was on hypnosis. Uh, it, it's really quite unbelievable. And I think, you know, this archetype goes so far is we often talk about waking up and the Buddha is the awakened one and all that sort of thing. I also think the Buddha is the dehypnotized one. Absolutely. Whether we know it or not, and this is exactly what I'm, I'm writing about now, I'm, I'm um, my, the third book in this dream trilogy is uh, kind of an integral approach to the phenomenology of lucidity and non-lucidity. And this kind of archetype of hypnosis is a really big part of it because we're hypnotized by our culture, by our society, by our own storylines. And, and therefore, you know, to, to tie this back in to what you're talking about at the outset of this last section, I, I actually argue, and I'm wondering how this lands with you, is that in a very real way, um, non-lucidity using that, that narrative is really a developmental issue um, based on egoic agendas that, that they're really, and this is one of the most insightful things that you said in your book, in a footnote, you had such a treasure trove of insights in your footnotes. But in one of your footnotes, you talk about how um, we humans are hardwired for narrative yeah. immersion. I mean, yeah. that's freaking brilliant, my friend, because narrative immersion, I mean, neurologically, that's a default mode network. But this is all based on, on the idea that ego itself is nothing but a narrative. Ego itself is just a bad story with a really bad ending. And so um, non-lucidity altogether is largely a developmental issue based on the arrested development of ego. And so if we understand that, then we can, just like with fear, we can put ego and fear, which are virtually synonymous, into its particular slotted bandwidth of human development. Thank it for you know, allowing us to get to this particular stage in, in human evolution. And then realize that, you know, if we don't open our eyes and, and transform this narrative, we will continue to be subsumed by it and, and continue to live our lives in the dark, which is one definition of samsara altogether. So, I mean, this contribution that you make here is, is just spot on. Well, thank you. That's so cool. I love talking about this. You know, it's so funny, Andrew. This is sort of like the conversation I wanted to have 15 years ago around that trip. And when it came out, I had all these, you know, it was fun. I had lots of media and certain kinds, but it was all around, oh, dreams are, tell us how, how dreams can be fun for emotions. You know, it was like, I really <laughs> wanted to be, and this is, which is great, but I really want to be getting into the deeper issues here. And, and I think I've, I think I myself didn't really even understand what I was learning there. I, mean, I was just yeah. understanding parts of it. And now having spent 20 years in a serious meditation practice, I have a different and maybe a, a broader understanding of those themes. And I, without question, the primary metaphor that I off, I use with my with students and when I think about meditation is this this tension between trance and waking up out of trance. 
And yeah. that, that, that's what is happening moment to moment is we're continually getting embedded in these trances of our own making um, and, the, uh, and then believing them to be real. And then there's this, you know, the single most, I wish I wrote more about this in the meditation chapter, but I was so new to meditation when I wrote written Head Trip. I, the one part of the book I would rewrite now would be the chapter on meditation, just because yeah. it's such a yep. good view. But, but the, 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 the primary phenomenon, the, for me, the core phenomenological piece within a meditation practice or an insight practice is the experience of noticing that you've been in a trance and waking up out of it. And That's the right. refreshment and space that suddenly emerges and the incredible liberty or the incredible freedom of realizing that, oh, I don't have to be in this. That thing I thought was fate, that thing I thought was real, that thing I thought was how things were, was just how I imagined things were. <laughs> and it was just a habit I was in. And That's that right. I can pop out of that and, there's, and I don't have to be in that fate, fated to, to follow through to that same destination. And so that sense of just like incredible space and freedom and gr gratitude that you can come out of that is the, that's the main thing that we, um, that come, happens again and again. And there's a ton more I can say, but one thing maybe just to put in here, because I, is also the beauty of trance, because I don't yeah. want to make it all yeah. like a, yeah. you know, the, the capacity to be lost in, to lose ourselves in the music. You know, I love going to nightclubs. I love your name, nightclub. I love nightclubs. I love like, you know, being out in the music and being with my friends. And there's a sense in which there's a kind of abandon. And I feel like when I really let go, I can get in the trance of the music and the beats and the connections with people. And trance is itself, I mean, the path of concentration is the path of using trance to That's come right. out of trance. That's right. So, you know, trance is a gift. It's like to be, and I often hear something in the contemplative world that really bothers me, which is I hear people say, Oh, I used to get really in. I used to be really into reading novels and films, but now I never lose my witness. I can't, I can't um, appreciate them the same way, or like, oh, they're just those are those are childish entertainments. And I always think, what a loss, you yeah. know. And yeah. Although I understand it, I also have a. I, I, it's harder for me to be completely absorbed or lost in trance than it was before. When I do, I so appreciate it, and I and I'm. This is one of my the, my Cohen's that I wonder. Is there a way to like be to completely give yourself over to trance in a way that's to enjoy the wonderful benefits of it in a healthy way, and then when needed to kind of pop out and disembed, and then then go back in and choose one again? And that to me seems like a good life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. I mean, it really. I mean, in my language, you know, I I riff a lot about near enemies and near friends. You know, wherever you find light, you will find shadows. Wherever you find shadows, you will find light. And and Really here, like the near friend of trance is samadhi, is, is absor absorption in, in, in meditative states of mind. But I want to come back to this thing, Jeff, that I, I think is super important and, and really applicable and practical. And my friend, uh, parenthetically, James Kingsland, who wrote this quite marvelous book called Am I Dreaming? Um, the New Science of Consciousness and How Altered States Reboot the Brain. He has a really beautiful riff here that we dialogued about that I want to send your way as, as well in in this next volley of conversation is that these storylines you know it's like i'm reminded of what james joyce once famously said you know history is a nightmare from which i am trying to awake well history the the inner reading of that is his story or my story um, is a nightmare from which i'm trying to awake that we are we are constantly 
sending up, in fact, as part of the default mode network structure. We're, we're constantly pinging out these narratives, which we experience as subconscious gossip and, and the layers of, you know, like CNN and the CNN subcrawler and the subcrawler, you know, these narratives that are driven by um, avoidance strategies of the ego that we constantly buy into and, and that we, we, we hypnotize ourselves um, it's this, this really perverse form of, of self-hypnosis where we generate the storylines based out of fear. We buy into them and we continue to keep ourselves utterly non-lucid by, um, again, this immersion narrative, by getting lost in the narrative immersions that we ourselves generate. I mean, what a pisser is that? And so then what we can do, of course, is on a relative level, I see two structures here and I'd love to see how this lands with you. You know, we can replace uh, that really pathetic story with a better story, with a, a kind of a dharmic story or the story of spirituality. But fundamentally, and this is where I want to see how this lands with you, um, we want to erase stories altogether. We still have recourse to stories, but fundamentally, we want to get out of the narrative, good or bad, um, and the habits that are generated by them and be free from, from any level of, of hypnosis. So um, does this resonate with your own experience? Oh my God, <laughs> it definitely does. I mean, there's so much here uh, to talk about. Uh, I feel like I want to talk about two things okay. simultaneously. So I'm going to just mark them right now and then come back to one of them. Cool. So one thing I want to talk about is a very practical thing about what it actually feels like and looks like in the moment to come out of trance. Okay. Because uh, there's just, I have some observations around that from my experience as a meditator. But the other thing is a slightly different thing, which is about what you started out saying, which is the importance of deciding what is the story that you want to tell. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. it's not given that we have these immersive minds that, that want to be immersed in narrative. What is a narrative? Can we create a narrative around our own awakening yeah. and our own around our best self that can really serve us? And I think we can. I think that there's often a. Um, within you know buddhist traditions there can be a kind of vilifying of the concept layer of the story mind of uh, which i completely understand because i'm like you i agree with that it's about kind of coming into the refreshment of the present moment seeing things as they really are as much as possible although of course we can't totally see things as they really are because we're always going to be seeing things through the through the sense gates of our biology so i mean this is another topic the animal consciousness topic which is a big <clears throat> passion of mine like in a way, our biology is just an older form of story that's got layered down in our nervous system and that constrains how we see things. So we have to be humble around that. But um, regardless, like there's a tendency within Buddhism to kind of go, oh, yeah, we're going to see things as they really are. The, the concept layer is somehow the villain in all of this. But I think that but that's not true. In other, in other schools of Buddhism, they talk a lot about the importance of view, the importance of having a good kind of view or a kind of. Uh, conceptual understanding of what's going on. And, and in my experience, there's a continual refreshment between the bottom, my bottom-up experience of what's true. And then, and I, so I have a new insight uh, in, in, in the world about how things are. And I take that experiential insight and I, and I update my view of the world. And so I have a more accurate view. And then, and then I'm reading a book by Andrew, maybe, or by, I don't know, Ken Wilber or by somebody. And I, have, I get a new insight, pardon me, <clears throat> from reading that book. And that actually allows me to see something new in my experience that I didn't notice. So yeah. the view 
that is uh, shared with me allows me to update my own understanding, my experience, which then updates my own view. So there's a continual dialectic between our view and our experience. And I actually kind of think of it's like the job of waking up is to basically bring those two into perfect alignment. So oh, it's sort of like mind, body, world. It's like there's three things that are out of alignment and we're just trying to bring them into, a, like looking down a tube and seeing them all line up, boom, boom, boom. And as they line up, there's this sense of enormous coherence and integrity. Yep. Yep. And that, that's kind of the, one of the core chronological kind of qualities of wakefulness. Pardon me a second. <coughs> Sorry, I got all excited there, but I'm not even done. So there's that thing um, and this idea that the, and then this is something William James was, I was really inspired by reading William James and the will to believe, you know, he was sort of saying like, look, when it comes to the biggest picture questions about mind, reality, about how, who we are and how we are, we, like, you can be a very brilliant person have completely different views on this. There's no evidence, you can read, find all the evidence in the world for that there's no meaning, or you can find all the evidence in the world that there is meaning. So why not choose a story that is inherently meaningful because it will then confirm itself to be that way. I mean, for yep. me, I figured this out when I was like 20. I'm like, oh, every, any, only an idiot would choose a view that was so dark. Like I would choose a view that was both light and dark, you know, like, like, so let your experience confirm what's true to you, but also deliberately hold the, uh, in your heart, this, the, this, the, the most beautiful view you can, because that's what you're here for. That's your beautiful creative mind, you know? Like let it, let it, let it riff, let it be wildly creative and like, and, and join with that view, you know? So that's just a thing about view, which you can respond to if you like. But the other little thing I was just gonna say is from the bottom up, um, my experience, I had this very interesting experience one time on a meditation retreat, which is I had been studying with Shinzen Young, who has been a real mm -hmm. mentor for me. And he was sort of my main teacher from about 2007 until, so I still go to his retreats, um, but I really kind of like drank deeply in his paradigm. Um, uh, particularly, uh, he, he's just a very good microphenomenologist, but he yeah. talked a lot about seeing, hearing, and feeling, and see out, hear out, and feel out. And so he would, spend, we would spend a lot of time noticing the thinking, uh, uh, the, the whole thinking process. And then, and what you notice when you spend any time with the thinking process is that there is often an image component to it. And yep. some people I, from working with students have a lot more images some have a lot less. There's often a language component, an inner auditory component. But again, some people have very little of this. Some people have a lot. And there may be other things besides it. There's certain ineffable knowings and certainly there are emotional atmospheric qualities. And there's lots going on in the inner world. But in particular around the image piece, I had been working a lot with that in my meditation and working with the talk piece and, and working with the talk piece after a while, it would just, things would just get really quiet. And I would, and I would say that really after years of meditating, I get much less inner talk than I used to. It's like mm -hmm. a lot of it has actually gone away, which is interesting. Not so with the images. If anything, they've gotten more vivid, more rich. And what happened to me this one day practicing is, I was, it was actually after a sit, I was walking down the stairwell uh, of this retreat center in Niagara Falls, and there was another meditator retreat walking maybe 10 foot in front of me. And I was, how do I explain this? I was thinking about them. Uh, I was looking at them, and I realized that I was actually 
only half looking at them, that I was mm. looking at a little image of them. Like, it's just like if you've ever watched those old, like, um, things of, like, parliamentary proceedings, or there's a little person in the corner who's, like, doing yeah. the gestures for the blind, you know? Yeah. Or, yeah. or doing the gestures for the deaf, you know, like, doing the deaf languaging. I, I could see this little person, like, a little washed-up figure in my mind's eye, and that I actually wasn't looking at them. I was looking at the image of them in my mind's eye. That's right. And I realized, like, a thunderbolt, most of my life was spent watching... These, right. This very faded out image of the world and not the world itself. And as soon as I notice it, I can see it everywhere. I can see it now. I've got a little image of you over here on the left side of my visual field. And yep. I'm looking at some trees right here, but I can also see on the left side of my visual field some images of those trees. And that most of the time, we're not actually looking at the world up there. Mm -hmm. We're looking at the world in our head. And we yeah. think that's what we're seeing out there. And yeah. of course, the, the relevance of this is the thunderclap is when I was able to notice that. I could let it go, and then I could look at the person. And yeah, that's could I beautiful. ever see them? I could see the detail and the richness in their face. I could, I could see them in a level I had never seen them before. Yeah. So that's, that's why I wanted to share. No, that's really beautiful, my friend. And just, just a couple of things that you may want to explore a little bit. You just absolutely beautifully articulated, in one of the most uh, compelling ways I've heard recently, the view of the Sautrantika. So if you're interested in the doctrinal underpinnings of exactly that phenomenology, the Sautrantika school of Buddhism, it, it, this is exactly what they talk about, which is this kind of overriding effect of top-down versus bottom-up um, data flows. And so it's an absolutely spot-on description of how we... I would also, can you tell me? Yeah, Sal, Sal, Sautrantika. So uh, S-A-U-T-R-A-N-T-I-K-A, -A, Sautrantika. Um, this is a large part, you know, as you know by now, Jeff, the, the Buddhists have a, it's one reason I, you know, I drink their Kool-Aid just because it's, it's convenient and it's in the neighborhood. It's not the only um, game in town, but it's a very powerful one. And they, as you know, they have a very elegant uh, progressive series of schools and practices that, that really lead one to awakening, at least according to the Buddhist view. And the Sautantika is, is, is one of the earlier and actually more foundational views that puts kind of doctrinal teeth to everything we're talking about here, that, that we are mostly living in the world of the map, not the territory. And, and when we slow down enough, we can see that um, that we don't see, that we we can cut through this. And, and the other book that you may want to look at, and I'm tossing this out because I'm going to be interviewing um, uh, Jonathan Brickland in a couple of weeks. He wrote a beautiful book that you may not be aware of called um, The Illusion of Will, Self, and Time, William James's Reluctant Guide to Enlightenment. Um, if you're a fan of William James, this is a must read. Um, he, he also- oh, yeah, I know Jonathan, actually. I, I, I have his book on, he has an earlier book on, on the mystical William James. Yeah, he's, he's just a super cool guy and a hell of a, a scholar. And so his work around William James and the New England transcendentalists and, you know, finding the innate wisdom in the American um, culture, I think, is just is just spot on. But I want to come back to a couple of things Absolutely. because, again, I think I think this is so incredibly important what we're talking about here, because it's also super practical that when you were talking about your your particular experience and everything, what came to my mind is that we are, again, using this narrative motif. Um, which to me is really what ego is, 
is that we're we're each best-selling um, authors, right? I mean, we are we are Nobel laureates, we are Pulitzer Prize-winning authors, and we're we're both the author and the consumer of our stories. So every every we we live on the New York Times bestsellers list because we're <laughs> buying into the story that we're spitting out all the time. And and the reason this has so much power, just to show you how far this goes in in Bardo Yoga, one of the things I rip on these days is you know death is only the end. If you think the story is about you, and so if if you cut the storyline or see through it, if this goes so far as to fundamentally transcend or see through the illusion of death. Death is just the end of the narrative. Death is just the end of this bad, bad kind of karmic chapter in our lives. <laughs> and if you stop buying the storyline that you yourself generate, um, ego drops away. It falls off the best-selling list. As a, you know. And 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 you end up um, cutting through the facade, the illusion of something so terrifying and and primeval as death itself. So what we're talking about here has tremendous applicability uh, across the spectrum of and and I use it in this overarching theme of lucidity versus non-lucidity because lucidity principle to me interests me even more than what we know is just classic lucid dreams. I mean I use dreams as a way to explore the nature of mind and reality. And so lucidity principle here is exactly what you shared in your experience, where, where you're going along and then all of a sudden you become lucid. You you wake up to what's really happening. You know, you're you're buying into into your narrative, into your map, and it doesn't allow you to see reality the way it is. And and I would also then argue that this is one reason why we have this ineffable sense that something's missing. Um, we we feel because we don't know what it is that something must be missing out there, and therefore uh, that gives birth to the whole uh, kind of consumer uh, agenda. But what's fundamentally missing is in here. And so I'm going to say one last thing about this, and then I want to send it back into your court. This is one of the things you suggest in in your footnote, which I thought was really just so insightful. This particular um, notion of the narratives and how we buy into it is actually the seed for the success story of the multi-billion dollar entertainment industry. The same, the exact same phenomenology that takes place in our lust for non-lucidity. When we want, we love to get captured by a movie. We love to get sucked into um, overt and covert levels of distraction. And this entertainment success story has its genesis in exactly this um, inner phenomenological process. And so I, I'm coming back to this because for our listeners, this cannot be overstated. And the really good thing about it is this is something that we can experience. We just have to slow down enough, pay attention to the underlying narratives that we in fact are generating, start to look very directly into those, and then we're heading in the right direction. We're we're becoming the insiders it's like uh, Sylvia Borstein once said, you know, happiness is an inside job. <laughs> so th there's a lot of territory we're covering here, but I, I just wanted to keep circling back to this topic because yeah. it has so much uh, applicability and it gives us power to change different stories or fundamentally cease the story altogether. Yeah, um, and this is so, so, so happy to be talking about this. This really, to me, speaks to the question of um, good art versus uh, mm. bad art, you know, that this is what, like, I'm a, you know, I came from studying literature. That was sort of my original passion. I've always been very into that 
And I think that, and it, I have a very vivid contrast in my life between times when I'm reading what I would consider really great books, like good literature, um, versus times when I'm reading more pulpy, pure escapist stuff. And I kind of, I like both, to be honest. I enjoy both. There's a kind of time for both. But I also see, um, I, have, I don't have any illusions around what I'm doing when I'm going into escapist entertainment mode. Um, so, <coughs> like, and, 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 so, and I do think that a good, a good narrative actually wakes us up. A, yeah. a, good, a, a, really, a brilliantly written book, you know, when you read a James Joyce, when you read a Proust, when you read a, um, a, a George Saunders, when you read Annie Dillard or, or, or uh, Ursula Le Guin, they are bringing you into a trance to wake you up from the trance. They That's are, um, it's like a pointing out instruction, you yeah. know, which yeah. is a little mini trance that wakes you up out of the trance. So that that's what great literature does, um, but similar, but but literature that isn't as truthful brings you into. But then you can see there's de degrees of less truthful art of 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 literature, of books, of whatever the art is that you're consuming, of film that is like more on the li living in the cliche layer, and therefore it's trying to sell you a lie, uh, the lie that is actually there's a big gap. And I actually sometimes think about the. The art of writing as a practice is the art of closing the authenticity gap between what you think you think and what is actually true. That's and good. there's this process, I know for me as a writer, where I'll start out writing about something, I'm kind of in my cliches around it. Like I'm just imbibing what the culture thinks about something or what I think of first view. But as I really write about it, I'm like, well, actually, what do I really think about this? Actually, I don't find that. And a good writer, lives in that stream. I mean, they, they also struggle probably with that gap, but that when you create something really truthful, you can feel the truthiness of it. And it's like, and it wakes and it reminds you, it takes you back into your life. It shows you, this is what it means to be alive. This is what it means yeah. to be human, to love, to lose, to see. So that's the positive side of it. But the other side, you know, the, the pulp fiction side of it, like I notice in my life right now with the new sun, I'm tired, I'm sleep deprived, I'm, I'm a little bit stressed, you know, I'm trying to like do all these things in my career and make these things happen and, and raise, make enough to, to, to feed my family. And, and I'm just noticing there's this layer of stress that I'm not being as good a practitioner as I could. And what do I want to do at the end of my day? I just want to watch Netflix or I just want to <laughs> read fantasy science fiction books. Exactly. I just finished a series last night. I'm like, I just want to, but I can't. And it's like the difference is when I was 12 I, or 14, I could do that. And it was like pure joy. Now I'm doing it. And it's like, I can't, I do have a bit of that feeling. I can't quite lose myself in the kind of, in the badness of it the way I could before. And it's, yeah. the trance has lost its authority, but I so crave it. I need the escape. And so I'm in this horrible situation now where I can't escape from my life. I have to just go deeper into practice. <laughs> it's yeah. sobering. Oh, I mean, that's fantastic. And, and I couldn't agree more with you. You know, it's, it's like <laughs> there in a certain way, we have to titrate, you know, the, the dosage um, that's required yeah. on, on the gradual path to awakening really includes what, what now I, I sometimes playfully refer to as mindful mindlessness, which is where exactly. I, I'm the same way. You know, I, I'm, I'm busting my butt. I'm writing half the day. I'm researching the other half of the day. And by the end of the day, you know, yeah, I do my, my little evening meditation, but there's part of me that that still feels the the caboose in my evolutionary train, 
and I feel this, I just feel the tendency is like, I just want to be stupid. I just want to be non-lucid. I just want to be mindless. But right. the only difference now is I, I do so mindfully, right? I do so, <laughs> maybe I'm just, that's a subtle bad story I keep telling you myself. I'm still, I'm, you know, it's like, it's on a sidebar, this is what I sometimes do when I joke about, you know, wrong speech, you know, it's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm slandering somebody, but at least I'm mindful that I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> So here's a question for you, Andrew. Do you yes, find sir. do you ever find awareness, wakefulness, mindfulness slightly oppressive? You know, I, I yes and no. And I think w the way I uh, again using this kind of more than binary approach to it, um, awareness can be oppressive from a relative point of view because it's challenging yeah. the narrative of the egoic agenda. From an absolute point of view, which is, you know, the older I get, the more I practice, the more I experience, I, I find myself, yes, I still use relative approaches. I still do so-called relative level practices, but I find myself, Jeff, it, you know, um, kind of aligning myself more and more with absolute level types of teachings, so-called yeah. non-dual traditions and the like. And in that capacity... Yeah. Awareness is always liberating, is always refreshing and opening. But at a certain point, one way to think about this, and, and Trung Rinpoche, the master of the one-liner, um, once said something really beautiful here, where awareness, uh, I often think of it as they refer to it in the Dzogchen teachings, it's, it's uh, um, sometimes talked about as space awareness. Um, you know, physical space is not the same as awareness, but it's also not different. And the reason I mention this is that Trung Rinpoche once famously said, space is the buddhist version of god and we're afraid of this god it's it's yeah. the, from the egoic stance it's too open it's too spacious it's it's like dostoevsky talked about it we're escaped from freedom where the e ego is afraid of this level of freedom and so what this is points to me and this is what i think is worth talking about a little bit is that at a certain point on the path you know, if you're a serious practitioner, you will enter what I playfully refer to as this, this kind of bipolar phase where, again, the ultraviolet aspect of you wants to wake up. That's why you're on the path. But the infrared part of you prefers to stay asleep. And and so there has to be a, a quality of maitri, of kindness towards oneself yeah. when, you're, you know, you, you, you know, it's not too tight, not too loose. You're pushing or you should say you're striving, but not too hard. So long-winded uh, response to a really great question is that yes um, my ego is afraid of awareness because ego loves to live in the dark i mean darkness is where ego goes to regenerate and and recharge its batteries and so it put it puts its do not disturb sign up and again this ties in beautifully to to the nocturnal meditations you know you wake me during the day but don't wake me during the night um and so that's why for some people, the nocturnal practices are too invasive, too disruptive, too disturbing, because they penetrate the sanctuary and the stronghold of, of ego altogether, which is darkness represented in the darkness of the night when we fall asleep. So I'm harping on this because I think it's super important for people to give, to give themselves a little bit of a break, to be kind and humorous. That's why I love about your work is is the the levity, the literally the enlightened quality that you bring to your writing and your teaching, which is no small thing, um, because I think you can really contact reality when you crack up and, and break up in laughter. You know, there's a real moment of insight, which we can come back to 
when the mind actually breaks open in laughter. It's, it's a kind of a pointing out transmission if you're very sensitive to it. But anyway, yeah, something like that, Jeff? Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, um, just to get personal for a moment, like I, um, I also really relate to the non-dual teachings and I feel like I just, I, op I do operate in that place a lot of the time. Like I just have meditated enough that, and I've, that I know how to disembed from almost anything, but I can go into a place of more of where my, I feel like I have a lot of space and then the conditioning comes up and I can kind of watch it go down. And it's like, it's, I love it. And I, and I definitely connect to the space quality a lot that, that, and that's been a real kind of refreshment. And I hope that that will continue to grow in my practice. But I also, I've, you know, struggled with, um, I mean, I got a bipolar diagnosis about two years ago and it, I, and it's really interesting, you know, I never noticed it. And, and whatever you make of diagnosis, it was, it's an accurate description of some of the symptoms where I would get in these states of extreme excitability. I mean, I was, I've been in that in this interview. Like I get really excited, enthusiastic, and all of a sudden I'm shooting up. I can't get the words out fast enough. And I never really had the downs. I just had high excitement, you know, most of my 20s and 30s. But after finishing Head Trip, I went into a period where I started to I got exhausted yeah. and I started to get into the downs. And what happened was I, it was partly, I feel like because of my meditation practice as well, fed into it because I was, I didn't have a focus on tranquility and the modality I was learning and people didn't talk about that. I was all about curiosity and excitement. And I basically would get with myself into these states of the, I now know are sort of the dukkha jnanas or like yeah. the uh, pseudo nirvanas, like where I'm in the states of enormous creativity and excitement and conviction, but activation, activation, activation. And the act of looking continually activated me. And it would get to the point where I would not be sleeping. I mean, we're talking yep. about for months, for months without sleeping and oh, wow. so tired, wanting to go to sleep, trying to, starting to fall asleep. This is after years after having done lots of lucid dreaming and all this. And I could tell you how to use mindfulness to go into a lucid dream and all these things. No problem. The problem started happening was the second I would notice yep. that I was getting tired, my noticing would activate my sympathetic response and I would yep. wake up again and I would end up in these cascading and this would go on and I would just get so tired. And that's what I mean by it started to be like, I was like, are you this tyranny of being awake, of being aware? My awakeness was activating energy everywhere. And I knew it was because there was some subtle hooks on things, but it was like, it was exhausting. And then similarly, when I would go into ceremonies, people would have these wonderful calming experiences. And sometimes those would happen to me, but more often the experience would be like 5 billion volts of energy flowing through me. And then I felt like I was basically emptying out for everyone in the room. Like I knew this huge purification was happening. And that I was sort of like the local hole of the reality that was just really wide open. And it was exhausting, exhausting, always exhausting. And I had to start, I had to shift a few years ago away from all of this. I had to start out of pure self-compassion. I had to go into a complete non-dual kind of place of practice where I had to go, basically I do kind of do nothing practice where I just sit and I exist. And I try not to notice, like I have too much mindfulness. I try to just be and let my noticing soften out. And, and it's been hugely helpful. It's sort of, I've managed to learn how to, take control of my bipolar symptoms from doing that 
But I just want to acknowledge that there is a coupling that can happen between awareness and these energy states. And nobody was giving me any good advice when I was going through this. And yeah, I know there's a lot of good advice there in the yeah. tantra traditions, in the in the Vajrayana traditions, but I wasn't getting it. That's and, right. Yep. You know. Yeah, I mean, thanks for 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 opening up and sharing that. I mean, these sorts of things are incredibly important to understand. And again, to to just perhaps toss this out to listeners and maybe even to you, what immediately comes to mind, and you and you were heading this direction towards the end, Jeff, is you know the Vajrayana inner yogas. They they actually articulate this sort of thing with tremendous elegance and detail. Um, these are what are referred to in, in that vocabulary as soklong or wind disorders, and they're they're um, kind of very again, near enemies to um, the kind of wind quality of mind when it gets stuck in, in the head chakra, in the upper chakra. And so what you talk about here, and this again ties into um, the kind of nocturnal narrative altogether, is, is that when we fall asleep, we, we literally have to unwind, or in inner yogic language, we have to unwind. And if we don't unwind, we um, stay up. Um, you know, we're, we're continually just too up. And so I, I toss this into the mix because even though there is a lot of kind of provisional validity to this very common notion of enlightenment is waking up, um, I am a little bit more inclined to balance this with the importance of waking down. That um, enlightenment in a very real way, especially from an egoic perspective enlightenment is a downer it, it's dropping into reality i mean when we fall asleep uh, if we can do so with full lucidity we're actually falling awake when we fall into deep dreamless sleep as you know turiya that is the the, the domain that is uh, the most in contact with reality which is why you know ramana maharshi said parenthetically that which does not exist in deep dreamless sleep is not real but I don't want to get too theoretical here. I, I want to acknowledge the, the poignancy of, of your personal story and to share with, with our listeners that when one does these deep dives into mind, there are a, a host of, of um, overt and covert obstacles. And I, I think if we don't experience these, we're either deluding ourselves or we just haven't really done anything but window shop. And, and this is why I wrote you know, my first book, Power and Pain, is that deep divers will encounter these types of, of, of obstacles. They're actually part and parcel of the journey. And so when we have these things, um, and I can't remember who said it, um, one of the Rinpoche said, um, with a proper view, these obstacles, so to speak, they become your path. They don't obstruct your path, they become your path. And I, I wanted to toss that um, into our into the soup so that people who struggle with these sorts of things, it is absolutely par for the course for people who do these kind of deep explorations. And and I, I in deep retreat and otherwise also have wrestled with these these soklong or wind disorders. And if they're not understood, they can become actually quite terrifying. Um, if they are understood, they can be brought with this proper view onto the path. And then, therefore, you can use obstacle as opportunity on the journey of awakening altogether. So, um, thank you so much for sh for sharing that, Jeff. And and uh, the resolution. I mean, if there, can you say a little bit about where all this is with you at, at this point? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been um, a lot of. I have done a lot of work on it. Um, 
and in, in two ways. One is through a lot of, I've been training in somatic experiencing and Peter Levine's paradigm. And so doing a lot of trauma release, a lot of it, you know, for me, I've had a lot of in very intense physical injuries in my life, like broken neck and broken shoulders and broken bones and crazy wild things I did in my 20s. Well, so there's a lot of, and then very developmental things too. So there's been a lot of um, releasing the trauma of a lot of that has basically, I see that as sort of a biological, I see a lot of the trauma work as being a kind of biological basis for a lot of what happens in Buddhism around kind of shifting energies and working through patterns and there's a kind of purification that happens there. So that's really helped um, doing, um, um, my mindfulness practice has helped in terms of I've learned how to not feed the ups and feed the down. I know how to back off the energies. Yeah. And also I've learned how to naturalize the downs as being, I see them now as these very differently as these very rich, productive, nourishing periods where as long as you're not judging the downs by the standards of the highs, they're fine. So there's that. And then finally, even what you're saying, you know, I, the way I transmit, transmute all this is through, I recognize what a gift it is that I've had these challenges because this is now what I bring to my teachings. That's so right. I am good at seeing these challenges in others and I've just developed ways of um, normalizing them and naturalizing them and uh, and and so I see it as you know it's just the compassion part of it is it's incredible it's this incredible gift it is you know your challenges are what you have to teach whatever your struggle is that you had to go through is the real thing you went through and therefore that's what you have the most authority to talk about and so I I try to be I try to bring in a kind of real uh, honesty around mental health challenges and lifting those taboos and talking about that and especially being a meditation teacher who's bipolar and ADD. I mean, it's sort of like a punchline of a joke. <laughs> it's like, really? Who wants to be with that meditation teacher? But uh, and that's a good question. Uh, so, the, so I feel like it, it is, um, it's getting better. I don't think it's totally better. Like last night, you know, I, I'm basically always awake. So I only sleep a few hours a night. I'm awake and there's these massive coconuts falling on the roof of our tin corrugated home because <laughs> we're in Costa Rica and it's very, there's a lot of windstorm last night. And so our little baby is, is a four month old Eden. We're terrified he's going to wake up. He doesn't sleep great. And my wife, especially is terrified he's going to wake up because she's, and so she's really stressed next to me and I can feel her stress so strongly. I can, and I'm, and I'm a little worried about Eden too. And, and so I'm just not falling asleep and I can work with all these different, um, techniques of just letting it be there and knowing, okay, this is just what's happening right now. But the fact of having a very sensitive energy body that gets activated very quickly is just a life challenge. I will always have that. And I don't know, maybe I need to be so massively established in my non-dual enlightened headspace, which I'm not there yet, that that stuff will just won't chain out. But I can tell you last night it was chaining out and it was preventing me from falling asleep. And I just end up going, okay, well, what can I do? I just surrender and just enjoy the wakefulness. And I've got a whole, like, compared to how I was 10 years ago, it's so much better. But yeah. there's definitely still some, some, some things there to work on for me. I know it. Um, so it's useful for me to be chatting with you in a big way. I love hearing your perspective on this. It's just very interesting. Yeah. You, you, you know, I'm sure exactly what you're saying. When we wake up, um, we, we become more sensitive. The, the nervous system becomes heightened, more awake. The, the subtle body system becomes more heightened and awake. And you know, one near enemy of that is, um, you know, that sensitivity can lead to heightened irritability, heightened touchiness, yes. 
heightened, you know, you're just like this big open wound because you're you're making yourself so much more available to reality, which to me is also revelatory in terms of how we shield ourselves from that vulnerability and sensitivity, because from a conventional point of view, it's not a day at the beach. And so ego on one level, again, it 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 gorges on on the dark and on ignorance and on being to sleep. And and I think uh, um, it might have been Ken Wilber who said something along these lines that eventually the fruition of these sorts of, of openings and the sensitivities that are invoked by them is that you you feel things more, but they hurt you less. Um, exactly. Because exactly the same way, you don't give them a place to land. So just like you were saying, you feel, you hear the coconuts, you, you all this other stuff is happening. Um, and your, you know, your exquisite sensitivity is is registering that. And I, the way I work with that is um, I notice the propensity to latch onto it, to reify it. And therefore, as you know, um, our, uh, your friend Dan Harris writes so beautifully about, propancha comes in and we just proliferate and we go ballistic. And again, that continues to keep us up and out and awaken that kind of negative sense. But, you know, it hurts, you feel things more, but it hurts you less because you don't appropriate it. You don't give it a place to land. Sure. Therefore, like neutrinos that are coursing through us, they just eventually course through us without hitting a thing, so to speak. So, I mean, I completely, I've had that experience many, 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 many times of just things going through. Um, and I want to ask you about the sensitivity around what can help with that other than just a general non-dual framework and practice sure. in that big sense. But I, the, it's interesting you say feel more hurt less. Because Bill Hamilton, who is a teacher I really like, he said, hurt more, suffer less, which I think is the same thing or very similar. Yes. yes. And that's been my experience. It hurts more now. Yes. I feel things so exquisitely, but they, yep. they pass more quickly. That's right. And that's the trade off. And it's like very sobering. You know, I, I feel more hurt less sounds nicer. <laughs> For yeah. me, been hurt more, <laughs> suffer less. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And, and this ties in also to what, what I was alluding to before. And, and when I think of this, Jeff, I think of this little kind of um, equation that that uh, I came up with or somewhere, I can't remember. I, I appropriate and steal and plagiarize from everybody. Plagiarism is the highest form of flattery. So I, I try to uh, attribute these things, but I Suffering think I might have come up with this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Suffering equals pain times resistance. So you're, you're never going to get rid of pain. Yeah, you're never going to get rid of pain. That's that's an inevitable lifetime partner. Um, but what you can do, if you're a mathematician at all, you can get rid of the resistance. So you drop the R. What happens to the S? The S goes away. So the Buddha, the Buddha got rid of suffering. The Buddha never really got rid of this thing we call pain. And, and even there, this this warrants a, qual a qualifying statement because. Um, Pain itself is an incredibly interesting thing to explore, somewhat like what we were talking about earlier with fear, is that you know we, we spend our lives, and again, transforming rhetoric into reality, making this as practical as we can. I mean, we spend our lives in an extremely sophisticated avoidance strategies to avoid things like fear and pain. We don't even know what they are. Um, and so I actually invite, um, and we did this yesterday in this, this webinar, I invite this battery of practices that you may be aware of called reverse meditations that come from the Mahamudra tradition. And the way this applies very, very uh, you know, appropriately here is that whenever you're feeling this level of discord, um, 
the invitation is to go directly into it. That's one of the reasons these practices are called reverse. You reverse your normally adverse relationship and you go directly into that sensation using kind of uh, investigation or Vipassana qualities. And you start to ask yourself questions. What, what exactly is this thing called pain? Where is it? Where do I feel yeah. it? What is this phenomenological characteristics and qualities? And then in so doing, you will cascade through a series of profoundly revelatory, I believe, discoveries that will radically transform your relationship to pain to such a, an extraordinary extent that you get things like, you know, one of the most haunting images in the history of photography of Taekwondo Duk being burned alive in, in, in meditative equipoise during the Vietnam War. I mean, how can some human possibly do this sort of thing? Well, it's because he has established a very profound relationship to this thing we call pain, where it no longer hurts in the conventional sense. And so these sorts of things have tremendous applicability where you yeah. can start to face the things that you normally flee and really transform your relationship to adverse circumstance. And this, as you know, this is one of the great gifts of the non-dual traditions, uh, Vajrayana, yeah. is to bring these dark, so-called dark aspects into your experience and realize that they're you know, utterly viable ways to engage our path. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, that, so that was my way initially. You know, I was, a, um, it was Vipassana. It was about, and that was my the advice Shinzen would give me. You know, when these challenging things come up, just go into them and open to them. And of course, you can get these amazing purifications. The more equanimity you bring to these intensities, the more there's a sense in which they're emptying out and clearing up. And I had that many, many, many times had experiences of dissolving, like being able to sit for hours and dissolving all pain and just like seeing how I can live in this place outside that. And so there's no question that I know that's true. However, what I also had to learn for myself was this idea of pacing myself within that. Because as someone with the bipolar piece, sometimes I would open up to energies and intensities that were far beyond my capacity to stay at yeah. with them. And they yeah. were far beyond, frankly, Shinzen's capacity to stay with them because he didn't, he's not bipolar. <laughs> so I was getting advice from a teacher who was judging my my nervous system by his standards, yep. which is a classic trap that happens. And so I had to learn for myself to actually go, you know what? There's an ideal here of working towards an ideal of equanimity, but I have to pace myself in the movement towards that because I'm going to get to a point where I'll get overwhelmed and therefore I have to actually turn back and do this self-care piece and work on discharging those energies. And then I could build up capacity a little more. So it was much more this titration exactly. of how I ended up learning how to develop as opposed to just going you know, and I had a lot of teachers, like, in you know, in different people in my life were saying, no, oh, you just got to, they had this absolute piece of advice around just opening to the challenge. Well, yeah. I could do that, no problem. I had no lack of courage around that. But I would then get massively dysregulated and spend two weeks in these hell states and before I could re get back into equilibrium. So I had to learn on my own how to, like, pace that. And that's, so that, I think this is just such an important thing to teach people around yeah. practice, this idea of pacing yourself of like, well, forget the ideal. The ideal isn't real. What's real is you. Where are you and what can you, how can you always be working at your edge? And then when you get to your edge, intelligently, compassionately move back a little bit, let it integrate. And then you can expand out a little bit more instead of going all whole hog for this, these sort of Zen extremes or whatever you want to put it. So 
that is such, oh my god that's such an important point because again touching back into this idea of near enemies and near friends you know we we tout and i think it's it's a, a real danger with the non-dual or absolute schools this kind of nike approach you know just do it well let me know how that works out um because we have to in exactly the way you say jeff i could not agree with you more that yes we can we can take um kind of um view a refuge in the absolute view from a from a kind of philosophical stance but if we don't honor the relative if we don't honor where we are and what we're actually experiencing and and we then set this unwitting metric against how we should it's like this maxim i say well don't should on me you know let me have my own experience and so the 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 trick here is you honor the um, absolutes is midway theme, but don't take excessive refuge in it. And I see this a lot in, in people who are so gung-ho in the non-dual traditions, they tend to disparage and dismiss, as, as John Wellwood so famously coined it with, you know, spiritual bypass and the like, you know, you, you tend to disparage and dismiss the relative truth. And then, you know, then you're in real trouble because um, the relative, the, the habits, the karma, the relative, has to be worked through. Um, and yes, theoretically, the absolute can handle everything, of course. But in reality, it just doesn't seem to work that way. The, the, the forces of the relative are formidable. Um, you know, it's only a Buddha that's habit-free or karmic-free or is actually joined relative with absolute. And so I even, what, you're saying, I what you're saying here is so important. I even wonder with the with the uh, so-called Buddha, you know, I don't. I think the absolute is a direction in experience that you can always half the distance to zero. But I don't know if you can ever 100% yeah. arrive. Maybe you can, and you dissolve in a ball, a puff of light. And I don't doubt. I mean, I'm open to the fact that maybe that happened with certain super ascended masters within a particular really hardcore tradition. But I also think that they're most the world senior teachers. You know, even the most enlightened people on the planet right now, there's still ways in which they are in the relative and 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 and, and even subtly, you know, biased, deluded by that relative. That there's yeah. like, you know, you never because to be a hundred percent there is to not even exist. <laughs> That's know? right. That's right. Um, and again, you know, I have to come back to the master of the one-liner, Trung Rinpoche, where in his brilliant introduction to uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I mean, he said something there that just absolutely blew me away, where he says, and I don't know it precisely, but it's something like this, where he says, it's actually the complete, unapproximated experience of duality that is non-duality. And, and this, this is incredibly important, because what it means is exactly what you're saying, if I'm hearing you right, is yes. that if you really want to experience non-duality, go into what you're feeling right here, right now. And you will find the absolute within the relative. It's always there, but it may not be resonant with your version of what the absolute exactly. is. So what I, exactly. what, I, what I often say here, and this again is super important, is that one of the biggest traps I see in my own path, and, and actually as a meditation instructor myself, is that we're looking 
for um, Hollywood on our spiritual path, but it's really more like Oklahoma and, and pardon people who are from Oklahoma. <laughs> In other words, it's just, it's so ordinary, it's extraordinary. And so this dovetails beautifully into the non, the real um, rendering of non, non-dual teachings where you go into what you are experiencing right here, right now, with, with a fearless gusto and a warrior spirit, and you will discover that the absolute is always already fully present within the relative. And therefore, you know, it's like Norm Fisher writes about so beautifully, Jeff, where he says, and I couldn't agree more, enlightenment is a false destination. Um, if you think you have to go someplace else to experience it, um, you know, again, from Pramache, striving is the only obstacle. So relax, open into what you're feeling right here, right now, 100%, and then you will actually find what you're looking for. But it may not, it may not be what you project. It's like um, I often talk about, you know, the spiritual path, as I've come to understand it, is not so much about feeling good. It's about getting real. And yeah, good in the, in the sense of basic goodness. And so what this does, and again, this is so practical, it allows us to open our hearts and our eyes to the utter immediacy of the awakened state that is always already present. We just, again, like, like we talked about at the beginning, we just have, have to open the aperture of our awareness to realize it's always here right now. It just may not be egos or your version of what you think it should be. And so you, then you have to be, in a certain sense, defeated by that. You have to surrender to that exactly. and then find the bliss in, in, the, in the shit show. Find, find the, you know, the ecstasy and the agony. Um, and then I think if you're doing that, at least that's, I've come to understand it, that's a more or less accurate rendering of what non-duality means, at least for me. Yeah, that's beautifully said. Uh, there's, you know, I, I think of it in terms of that, it, what is your own life showing you about your own awakening? And that for long, at different times in my path, you know, I've had different teachers whose model or understanding I've been like, I've really been struck by, and then suddenly I reify it. And I'm looking forward in my experience but it's not my experience. It's it's his or her experience I'm looking for. And then this thing of like kind of waking up to what my own experience is really finally showing me. And that's why I spend so much time in my teaching emphasizing how to be your own teacher and what that looks like. Because there, in so many subtle ways, we adopt the kind of conventions of the of the, the narratives and the stories and the ideas of the people around us. And then and they can move us. They can help at the beginning, and then they end up getting in the way. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Uh, so, wow, gosh, my friend, so many things. I, I just wanted to um, come back to when you were doing, because, you know, this this book, and then I want to turn to what you're you're currently working on. But when you were doing your 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 own research in, in the head trip, and perhaps even more importantly, when when you had the guts to do the kind of, um, ex, you know, invite yourself into the experiences that you were talking about. I love the stories that you share about going into into the dark and the cabin and all that sort of thing what were some of the what surprised you i mean we often of course we write for ourselves and so this as you suggested earlier was really a, a almost like a diary a personal journey of exploration and discovery uh, i'm curious what stood out for you or what surprised you the most when you were engaging in in the research and the experience of the actual um the book uh, well, I mean, I think I have to say the most stunning 
uh, shocking experience that I've ever had in my life was my first super vivid lucid dream. Oh, cool. It was one thing to read about lucid dreaming, and I had sort of lucid dreams. But when I really, truly, I mean, my first big lucid dream where I woke up into a space that was more real than my waking life. That's right. And I could not believe this was a possibility of life on Earth. Yep. I mean, I can't, I still can't quite communicate to people how absolutely thoroughly flabbergasted I was. Like, it, I didn't realize, because everything I had thought about, because most of dreaming, we think we know what our dreams are, but really we're thinking about our kind of washed out memories of dreams. But you, when you really wake up with full vividness in a world that is phenomenologically as like vivid and real as waking, and you can touch things and feel textures and have smells and you could breathe and feel the air in your lungs. Like I, I didn't even know that was a possibility of life on earth. And I, I kind of feel like that has been more dramatic than any awakening I've had in waking, although I've had some dramatic yep. ones in waking too. But yep. that dreamlike one was like the echoes of it. I'm still feeling in my life. Like it gave me a permanent appreciation for the dreamlike nature of reality, for That's the right. fact that, the construction we build is a perfect construction. And yeah. just like respect to the mind. Like I, I had no, I, I'll, I've never lost that sense. It's just like, it shook me to the core. Um, I mean, and that's the, again, that's also the main insight I get again and again and again when I've done ceremonies in the past has been the medicine showing me again and again how I create this little tree house in the mind. And I, <laughs> it's like we're in this, I'm in the floor, I, I climb up in the tree house and then I think the tree house is the world. And, <laughs> And the, and the medicine will just laugh and show me again and again, like, hey, hey, you're in a treehouse, and then take down the treehouse, and I'm like, ah, and I have to put the treehouse back up. You know, it's a, you just see again and again and again how we do that. And I, I've never, I know that when I walk around moment to moment, I sometimes have that very strong sense that I'm just walking through this dream world. Yeah. And I know that my mind is building. And I know that is true. It's accurate. It builds it from the rubble of the sensory world as it comes in. I guess I didn't realize that the biggest mystery in reality was what the outside world is. Yeah, I didn't realize it? that's the real mystery. Yeah. It's what is the world? Because yeah. we don't see it. Yeah. And whatever it is, we don't know. We have <clears throat> yeah. no clue. We only have this limited little perceptual apparatus that's like our chimpanzee version of reality, which is different than a dolphin version, which is different than a tick's version, which is different than a tree's version. And we think we're in the real but we're just in this confabulation that's based on the real. There's a relationship to the real, obviously. And that, you, once you get that perspective, you never, you never lose it. You know, you that's just, right. you're always yeah. a little bit one foot out. That, oh my gosh, I mean, that is so resonant with my own experience. And, it, 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 and again, I, same with me is one reason I'm so passionate about these so-called nocturnal practices and in particular lucid and, and hyperlucid dreams because, I mean, the way I saw it out, Jeff, is that the reason they're so um, incredibly transformative is because they're so foundational. You're actually touching in, you know, it, it's like I mentioned earlier in the wisdom traditions, if you're lucid to it, you're actually more in contact with reality in the dream and in the dreamless state. And and so I, I think these states and experiences are so um, transformative in the same way that near death experiences are transformative. You're You're touching into something so radically foundational, this kind of tectonic shift, this earthquake in, in cognition and knowing, 
it's a deal maker um, because it, it completely shakes the snow globe. It completely realigns your definition of reality. And, and I toss this out for our listeners because what this means is you do not, just like with a near-death experience, right? You don't have to have these things over and over to be changed by them. You only need one uh, to see the light, so to speak, because it's so foundational. And and the, the playful jargon I, I use here is that with these types of experiences, which, which can happen serendipitously and, and also can be cultivated through the nocturnal practices, you, you can train yourself to wake up on the right side of the bed um, with these types of experiences that then perfume permeate not just your day, but your entire life. And it's the same with me. I, I mean, I've been blessed um, because I've you know, committed myself to be a deep diver of mind. I've been blessed with an, a number of quite extraordinary experiences. Um, and the ones I come back to that are perhaps the most transformative are exactly the ones you talk about, these hyperlucid dreams where you wake up from those experiences and this appears to be the foggy dream. This appears to be a dilution of what you just experienced. And then the, the, the question, challenge, invitation is how to stabilize that, how to make that more um, kind of the the default of your waking experience, and then how to use that um, light to therefore illuminate the the entire entirety of your day or your life altogether. And so, um, yeah, I mean it's just beautiful. It, you really just kind of nailed the whole thing. And and this also the notion of confabulation. I mean that's another way to talk about what the Buddha was. He was the deconfabulated one, right? I mean he was one again he or she from any tradition you know, could see through the storyline, could see through the narrative, could see through the confabulation, the pack of lies, and, and come to rest in, in some semblance of reality. And so so how do you work with your dreams today? I mean, our, we started a little bit at the beginning with this, as we're starting to come full circle. What role do these nocturnal practices um, have in your life um, as we speak? I mean, do you actively work? I know you did the 10-day thing with our mutual friend, Stephen LaBerge. Do you continue to work with these nocturnal practices? Um, what what role do they continue to well, have? Yeah, they. Um, well, it's 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 interesting talking about this. It's sort of like it, it's inspiring me to kind of get back to it more. What I've found is that um, I I can lucid dream when I want to. Like if I decide before I go to sleep, you know what? I haven't lucid dreamed. In, I haven't had a lucid dream in a while. I can. You know, there's a good chance that could, that can happen that night. And I, I can move into it from, I'm good at doing those wake-induced lucid dreams where I can just, it's all about equanimity. Like I can wake up, I usually wake up in the night at a point and then I'll just try to keep my, my body and mind so utterly smooth and frictionless that my awareness can go transition from waking straight into dreaming. And I love doing that. And I, um, but the thing is, I don't do it a ton because it kind of is tiring. <laughs> you know, it's like, or it, it, it's like, <clears throat> it, it affects my sleep. Like the wakefulness, the ver the the vigilance. There's a little bit of a vigilance in it. Um, it, it. Actually, if I have the vigilance when I'm trying to transition in, that won't work. But the the kind of like commitment to do it, the extra charge that it brings into my awareness, it ends up affecting my sleep. So I. I have this story I've told myself that maybe I'll come back to these practices that I have to like work it, working through this hypervigilance thing before I go back to them. So I kind of feel like I've been on a bit of a, 
uh, away from them a bit. And But talking to you is kind of getting me inspired to go back to them. I guess what I worry about is how do I go back to them in a way that's not going to affect my my sleep, you know, at like sort of the restorative side of my sleep, because we've already identified that I have a bit of this wind disorder thing going on and this hypersensitivity. And I, I feel kind of like I need to address those pieces before I can go back into my night practices with the same enthusiasm as I once had. So I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, a couple of things come to mind, Jeff. One is, um, you know, I mean, as you know, this is one of the reasons it's actually a bit helpful to understand is the stages of sleep, you know, the the non-REM, deep restorative phases versus REM, uh, prime time, dream time stages. And and so what, what I do, and maybe this will work for you, is uh, when I set my internal alarm with intention and expectation, um, and our mutual friend Stephen LaBerge and others have shown how important expectation really is here, um, I set my inner alarm um, to go off during prime time, dream time. So I personally, I have this, you know, overt and covert do not disturb sign unless I'm doing actual sleep yoga practice. That's a different animal um, where I don't touch the deep early, uh, first early phases of, of, of the night when I'm mostly in non-REM sleep and getting really the, restora the restoration that I really need. Because as you know, when you're in REM, um, your brain is as active, if not more so than it is during the day. And so what I do is I'm just a little bit more overt with my intentionality. So that's that's the FedEx, right? So that's what sends this alarm to ping me, not at two hours after I go to sleep, but you know maybe two hours before I wake up when I am in prime time, dream time. And so I set that intention, I set that alarm, and again, you'll see it when you believe it. And so I believe it, I set the alarm, it usually pings me up. It also does help um, because the older I get, you know, I have to wake up to go to the bathroom around that time anyway. So I work with the wake and back to bed method at that point. And in that sense, it doesn't really affect my sleep. Um, I also, practically speaking, engage when I really, really want to explore these things. And again, I, I don't do this every single night. I do... Um, different types of uh, hypnagogic, hypnopompic, you know, liminal state practices. Those I do every single night. I mean, we can talk a little bit about that, but full-blown... I'm curious about those. I, I'd love to know about that because I, I play around with that a lot too, just pretty much every night. Yeah, well, we can come back to that in a bit, but, you know, that's the way I play with it. So unless I'm doing sleep yoga, which is outside of our charter for today, I, I just target primetime dream time you know, later stages of the night before I wake up, I allow myself to do so on, on days when I can sleep in. So I don't wake myself out. In fact, if I do get up um, and then with that, you know, I've had relatively decent success. I, I don't have to worry about disrupting my sleep. Um, so you can just, you know, maybe give that a whirl and see if it works. And, and then just like what you were talking about earlier, this totally applies to these nocturnal practices. The idea of pacing yourself, titrating your experience, you know, not too tight, not too loose. And especially with people who have these um, sensitive, subtle body and autonomic, you know, nervous systems, then um, I would recommend playing a little bit more on the too loose side of things um, because the default tends to be a little bit on the too tight side. And so therefore a little bit more spacious, relaxed, playful approach, inquisitive, curious approach is something that you might find helpful. Um, but you know, yeah, yeah let's... that that is how I do. 
that's how I approach meditation <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there is a, like a, you know, about the lucid dream stuff, there is still a way in which it is there as a practice. You know, I do, do, do it fairly regularly. And for me, it becomes an opportunity to explore equanimity, like the, both the kind of going into it in terms of how little resistance I can have. So I just kind of get fully transparent and let whatever wants to have happen, happen. But then when I'm in the lucid dream itself, I, I'm continually coming back to being very centered in the lucid dream, not getting, because I used to get so excited that I would wake myself up or whatever. But now it's about letting myself be utterly like centered and autonomous in the dream itself. And that I find is a really rich practice because I can literally see the more autonomous I am, the more the dream just kind of like generates itself versus Absolutely. the more uh, I get coagulated or uh, I begin to interfere too much with things, then I feel like the, I can feel things starting to shake apart. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's really great. And then the practice, when I have those experiences, the practice for me is a more kind of a witnessing lucid dream or what, what Ken Wilber talks about is pellucidity, where, where you sit back in this kind of witnessing stance and, and this is important in terms of, of sometimes people's objections to um, lucid dreaming and particular dream yoga, like this active engagement and transformation of content. The great thing about these practices is just like with uh, their kind of diurnal or daily correlates, the nocturnal meditations have themselves a, a broad spectrum of applicability, one of which is this liminal thing that we can get back to. And so we can engage in the lucid dream state in a number of ways. If, you, if you're in the mood and you want to practice some of the more transformative steps, you know, you do those. Um, but it's 100% viable to simply sit back in a witnessing stance, fully lucid, like being at the movie, of what's being displayed in the arena of the dream without any interference or um, participation. And it's, it's really, as you know, then, highly analogous to our daily meditation practice, where you're simply watching yeah. the display of the mind within the nocturnal um, environment without allowing yourself to get sucked into it, exactly like in daily meditation. So this is another way to talk about practicing your meditation at night. Um, and I have found, and this is what you write about beautifully in your book, Head Trip, is this kind of bi-directional thing between the nocturnal and diurnal states that you know, the more I practice meditation during the day in this way, this kind of witnessing practice, the more that habit, karma, whatever, plays itself out at night in these kind of witnessing um, stances, uh, witnessing dreams. And then, you know, <clears throat> we can come back to this issue if you want to talk briefly before we start to wrap up here. Um, how to, you know, play with liminal states with hypnagogic hypnopompic, because I thought one of the strongest chapters in, in the book, Head Trip, was in fact your chapter on, on hypnopompic spaces. Um, usually people tend to emphasize hypnogogic, but the hypnopompic is something that I thought you addressed really elegantly. So um, do you play with those? Like when you're waking up or going to sleep, or is this part of your... Um, oh yeah, know, well I play a lot with the hypnogogic because I just am awake. it takes me a while to fall asleep. So I just have learned to completely sort of relax and surrender and I just watch I'm, I'm, I just watch the all the different the phenomenology of the different layers of hypnagogia as it starts to unfold. Like, and I can notice like all I can notice as the ideas begin to get more strange and bizarre and associative, and then I start to see the images begin to develop more gravity, and then I can and 
and I, I can start to recognize certain day residue, like things coming in from the day, and then I, I can, but then I can know, I notice some non sequiturs, and and I notice the volumetric distortions and changes in space and proprioceptive things, and I just, I'm fascinated by all of it, so I just sort of watch it and write it. I don't engage with it, which I've always, I, I know that lots of, there are practices to do that. I'd be interested in learning more with that. It's more like I just witness it. Uh, I'm always looking for the moment when I start to fall asleep and I, and like when that is, and then I watch, and I'm very interested in that too, and watching when that begins to happen, because I can now kind of watch it, you know, and still be aware. And then I can feel like kind of the forgetfulness thing coming almost like a wave. Um, uh, so I do that, but the hypnopompic, I don't as much. I really enjoyed doing it when I was writing Head Trip. I was sitting around, but it has to do more now just with having a, my son and my things in my life. I tend to just wake up and I don't give myself the time to uh, relax in bed in the same way. I just sort of lurch into my day. I think like a lot of people, and I think that's kind of a loss, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. I, so I'm inspired to, 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 to come back and do more again. Yeah, I mean, what you what you share with the and again for listeners, hypnagogic is is the kind of that pre, kind of like sometimes I re playfully refer to it as is bardo state. It's really a bardo between waking consciousness and and dreaming consciousness, where hypnagogic is leading towards sleep, leading towards the god of sleep. Hypnopompic is leading away from sleep, leading away from the god of sleep. And and I do exactly what you do. This is something I do every single night which is also part of you could also look at it as lucid's um sleep onset you know it's a way to to kind of bring a quality of awareness slash lucidity as the mind transitions from waking to dreaming state and and again you write about this really beautifully in your book and it's it's an absolute night um, nighttime practice i do every single night really similar to what you just said i step into this kind of witnessing stance, which doctrinally, this is Advaita Vedanta. I mean, this is their kind of their approach um, to, to minor reality altogether. So it comes kind of from that positioning where I just simply sit back and, and um, with as much equanimity as I can bear, kind of just celebrate the, the play and the display of my mind as it makes this transition, as it literally disintegrates, falls apart, and all these hiccups and all these, you know, anybody who's experienced this knows the bizarre, otherworldly kind of Bardo-like space that you enter there. That is really, really interesting. And uh, there's a ton of stuff you can do, for instance, and I'll just toss one of them out. In addition to the witnessing thing, one of the things that you can do um, as a practice of uh, kind of micro lucidity or micro um, dreamlets is, is actually watch um, and this also ties into the inner yogas. You can you can watch a thought. Um, Tartantuku Rinpoche talks about this in his book Openness Mind, where you can um, kind of harness in the very gentlest way. He talks about it as like holding gently the hand of a child. And so you, with your mindfulness, you gently hold a, a, a thought. It's, it's almost like a seed syllable, and it's a, it's actually almost a form of dream incubation. And then you can take that thought. I'm nurtured with this very delicate awareness. And you can, if we don't take it too literally, you can actually hold that thought and dip it below the membrane of sleep and then watch that thought transform into an image, transform into a, a micro lucid dreamlet on the spot. And these things, in my experience, oh, wow. Jeff, they, only, they only last, you know, two, three, four, five, ten seconds. Not enough for me to actually do anything. But what is so interesting about this 
is it shows you how mind becomes reality in this kind of lucid, solipsistic yeah. way. You know, you can actually watch how a thought inflates into an entire dream. And this has, as brief as it is, this has tremendous applicability because it shows how thought, in this case, creates reality. And then, you know, somewhat by interpolation, how my how thought colors reality. And then in the Bardo teachings, if you believe in this sort of thing, this is precisely the mechanism that they say will lead to either voluntary or involuntary rebirth, where um, it's not just a, a micro dream or a dream itself that's seeded by thought. Fundamentally, uh, and the Dalai Lama talks about this, is this is why he says, you know, the Bardos are an extremely dangerous time. Well, they're dangerous if you're not lucid to them and if you're untrained. If you're lucid and you're trained, they become a very opportune time. And so this is a little bit of a segue into how lucid dreaming also leads to lucid dying, that you can take the same process and use it as an intimation of what can actually take place according to the, the Buddhist teachings anyway, when we actually die, that you can, you can directly intentionally see not just a dream, but if you believe on this stuff, an entire life. Um, and so, you know, it's this, it's this kind of iterative quality. Wow, um, fractal. But, yeah, this fractal application. So you see this phenomenological process taking place at this really moment-to-moment -moment instantiation in the dream state. And then they say that this same type of process um, can occur in the bardos. And if that's true, whoa, baby, this is, this is no small thing. We'll see, right? <laughs> that's wild. Uh, that's so interesting. So when you do this, thing with the dream i think i've done this before where i've held that softly held a thought and then just as you beautifully put it kind of dip it below the membrane and then begin to watch it kind of like bloom into this it, whole exactly. scene it inflates um, yeah exactly it inflates but i've always had the experience i've never been i always experience it as a witness have you can you experience it as actually being embodied within the scene if it's long enough, usually what happens is they're so brief. They're they're like they're like uh, carbonation bubbles, you know. They just come up to the surface and they're yeah. and then you pop, pop. But even that, even that is 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 illuminating. Even that is like, whoa, look at this. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. And then here comes another wow, bubble. Wild. It's almost like a thought bubble, you know. There it is. Thought, image, dream, pop. Thought, image, dream, pop. And then with with practice, you can you can sustain it. You can then that's a real wake initiated lucid dream, right? Then you can actually slide slide into it. It's a form of micro dream incubation where you can literally, um, and this you know there are Tibetan Buddhist practices, uh, generation stage practices that work with this. So this is resonant with these types of meditations where you use visualization practices to you know train the mind in this capacity, but. It's, it's a way that I have explored it. This is something I do every single night because it's entertaining, it's fun, it's illuminating, it's revelatory, and it definitely doesn't interfere with my sleep because this is where I'm going anywhere anyway. But at least yeah. now I'm doing, I'm doing so with lucidity and it's just like so interesting. It's just the coolest space to explore. <laughs> Pema Chodron talks about it when I interviewed her. She introduced this very interesting term, you know, which, which I love. She talks about it as, is playing with the plasma of the mind. Um, and I love that image that yeah. you know that it hasn't quite formed, you're in this barrio space. And some people find it disquieting because there's no ground. I, I find it utterly fascinating. It's like, wow, look at yeah. what this mind can do. It's so fun. <laughs> uh -huh. 
Well, it's so fascinating and so validating actually to hear you talk about it like this because it makes me, it kind of just validates a lot of my experiences and instincts around this because I've always found this to be just dead fascinating and not knowing why. And now it's like, yeah, exactly what you're talking yeah. about. It's like, because you're watching, you're basically incubating realities. Exactly. And that is exactly. an enormous journey in that. Exactly. It, it's, 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 it's kind of, you know, it's interesting, this kind of ineffable mystery profundity that you feel that may be inarticulate, but you just know there's something more going on here. And, and I think this is part of it. You know, it's actually part of, part of yoga. It's a way to work with it. Because, you know, they, in the Tibetan tradition, Jeff, they talk about um, death, literally, um, they refer to it as the dream at the end of time. And, and, and this is a great place for us to slowly start to, to die or wind up to this program is that one of the things that, that I've discovered here, and this kind of sums up so much of what I've been hearing from you, this sums up something really quite profound that um, answers a question that is directed to me in, in when I teach on Bardo's more than almost any other. And that is, you know, where do you go when you die? Well, with a deep understanding of these types of teachings and practices, you simply transition from one dream into the next. Um, and it's only because of all the things we've talked about that we reify this current display of mind, this current dream into so-called waking reality, where fundamentally it is in fact a dream. I mean, that is what the Buddha and other awakened ones discovered. They, they woke up from the nightmare of a reified dualistic reality. They woke up to the dreamlike nature of reality. And so that, talk about the ultimate irony. They woke up from what we call reality, which is actually a nightmare, right? Dualistic reality is a nightmare. <laughs> they woke up from that puppy into an empty, groundless, dreamlike reality. Um, and so with that deep understanding, and this is what I riff about a lot, then we realize that dream is just a code word for manifestation of mind. Um, and so by understanding the, the you know, the double delusion um, of the nighttime dream, the example dream, we can understand and extrapolate those insights into the primary dream until we come to this ultimate equanimous discovery that we've been talking about throughout our conversation, where fundamentally everything is a dream. And so this is enormously helpful. You know, we, we, we um, de-reify reality, see everything fundamentally as dream, and then we realize when we die, we just go to the dream at the end of the time. We simply transition from this dream with full lucidity uh, in the mind of an awakened one into the next dream. And this is why people like His Holiness 16th Karmapa could say so cryptically and beautifully just before he died when somebody was, um, you know, weeping. Vajrayajan was at his feet weeping as a, His Holiness was dying. And he looked at him with tremendous equanimity and kindness and simply said, Nothing happens. For someone who's already recognized the dreamlike nature of reality, nothing happens. And so they penetrate the, the illusory nature of death, the death of death. And, and so therefore, again, this great great place to close. Lucid dreaming not only leads to lucid living, lucid dreaming leads to lucid dying until you realize the ultimate kind of democratic nature of the whole shebang. So anyway, my friend, that's that's my little riff on that. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So I had a question for you. Um, yeah, sure. Something I, I I always I wonder about. I'm just curious about asking people about, it, and I'm curious about asking you about it. I 
it's no problem for me understanding about waking up to kind of empty awareness. No problem. No problem at all. I can understand the non-dual paradigm. I feel like I'm operating in it in a way. And, um, but what I find so, and, and the dreamlike nature of reality, absolutely. But what I find so weird and exciting and hard to talk about about this dreamlike nature of reality is the way in which um, the synchronicities piece, because uh, they happen so much for me, yeah. the, yep. the patterning within the dream yep. of where my own, uh, my own inner experience is beginning to be reflected back in the dream. And now that is not, so it's, it's one thing to say, okay, we can learn that it's all one thing and we can start to see the same in the, the world, you know, not through the concept layer and see things as they are. But this whole other thing is actually seeing the production of reality as something self-produced that we're all simultaneously producing and that our inner process are having effect on the outer process. I mean, that is sort of simultaneously the way of madness, but it's also the way of a deep, deep understanding. And I, you know, as I come more and more into this understanding, as I'm getting more and more of that experience, I find I almost don't know what to say about it. I don't know what to, I don't often share it with people because I don't want people thinking I'm crazy. Or something or like i'm a deluded mystic or some new age person but i do definitely see the way in, like i just can't help it the synchronicities are crazy so what's your take on that whole the kind of the depth the kind of deep end of mysticism i don't feel like a lot of people talk about as much or, or only the kind of unhinged mystical people talk about people are safer talking about oh yeah empty awareness is a thing but talking about that uh, i wonder what your own experience is how you think of that yeah, I, I might have to ask a couple questions for clarification. But the, the the first thing that comes to mind is is this really beautiful quote by um, R. D. Lang, where where he says, and I'm sure you've heard this, Jeff. You know, the mystic swims in the same ocean where the psychotic drowns. Um, yes, definitely. So that in itself is revelatory. But what 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 isn't entirely clear? And so riff on this just a little bit more. You know, one of the first things that comes to mind is, um, and I'm not sure this is on the right track, which is why I want a little bit more clarification, is that is that fundamentally um, the display of inner and outer starts to really dissolve, does it not? Um, and, and, I mean, even physicists say this, yeah. right? I mean, John, John yeah. Wheeler said, you know, there is no out there out there. And, and so this, this is either disquieting or liberating, again, depending on the, the reference point that you bring to it. And so, from from um, kind of an untrained um, point of view without the proper map, this kind of deconstruction of, of inner and outer um, can result in things like psychosis and schizophrenia and, and insanity. But, you know, these are all terms based on, on gradation. We all have these capacities for, for um, in, uh, insanity within us, depending on how we relate to the experience, how we reference it, how we view it. So what isn't clear to me that maybe you can help me understand is, is say a little bit more about how what you're experiencing is playing itself out in your dreams and, and just maybe help me understand a little bit more about where you're coming from with this. Sure. Well, I mean, actually, I mean, I think for me, personal experience is being enormously beautiful and deep and soft. What, what kind, I'm it's, sorry, Jeff, what, what kind of experience? what kind of experience so it, it's so what i what i experience is um in the waking world 
the just the this feeling of ever more everything being charged with meaningfulness in a very beautiful yeah. way yeah. and that, and then things pattern together so i will read about something and then all that same something will appear in all these iterations all around like blossom like flowers blossoming along a vine and yeah. i just in these trails of meaningfulness just they're just continually unfolding everywhere but in a way that's so natural and simple and it's yeah. not like i look at each trail and think oh that's what is that showing me? I don't do that at all. I just, it's more like I recognize that the fact that they're happening shows me that I'm moving along, that my practice is, is um, increasing, that it's like I'm, it's Absolutely. deepening, it's broadening, Absolutely. and there's yep. a sense of momentum and naturalness that's going along with it. And, and it's just like these little jokes, these little cosmic winks everywhere. And I don't, I feel like I have a very healthy attitude to it. I don't feel like it's remotely delusional. It's just like, it's the world as it is, but the world patterned in this meaningful way. Yeah. So yep. if I were to talk about a hawk, yep. then I look up and I see the hawk move there and then yep. someone talks about the hawk and then, and it's just this dreamlike nature yep. in which just like in a dream, we, these things are patterned and connected uh, that we have, we, you know, we look at a tree in a dream and then it brings up a memory of an older yep. tree and then another tree in the same thing. And, and it seems to be happening a little bit in waking but yep. in this way that's so soft and lovely. And that's no, what I'm trying to speak yeah, to. Yeah, no, okay, I think I, I think I got it now. So yeah, a couple of things, my friend. First of all, good for you. Um, what a beautiful rendering of, of, of the process of waking up. And a couple of things come to mind. Um, one is that um, meaning is itself, um, is it not, um, a consequence of full presence. In fact, I would say one of the things, not only meaning, but even spiritual experience itself, if you take, if you look at the fundamental common denominator or ingredients of spiritual experience, it's full participation and full presence. I mean, that's part of what makes things spiritual. And so the reason we 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 aren't spiritual, of course, is because we're we're not present. We're we're missing in action. We're we've gone awol on reality. And so when we um, find ourselves present then that presence in um you know in a wonderful play on words expresses itself in these in these ways of of deep sense of meaning and this notion of synchronicity or coincidence and let me say a little bit about this because i i too have absolutely positively had these experiences carl jung talks about it of course beautifully from a psychological perspective but my riff on this jeff is that um coincidence or what's called tendril and i'll come back to that in a second in tibetan um, in my experience, coincidence is when the universe is on your side. Um, you're, when you are doing what you are supposed to, um, quote unquote, destined to do, destined to be, you will find that your life is ringed with synchronicities, with coincidences. It's as if you are finally entrained in resonance and in harmony with reality. And reality, therefore, responds through um, what's sometimes referred to as symbolic guru. The world then becomes this most intimate, ineffable kind of teacher and supporter that what you're doing is the right thing to do. And the reason this is important and very practical is that this works conversely. So in other words, when you are not doing what you're supposed to do, um, then coincidence is replaced with accidents then instead of things supporting you, you're either nudged, depending on how asleep you are, you're either bumped back into alignment, and the reason this is important is that if you pay attention to these bumps, 
you can quite literally save your life. If you don't pay attention to the bumps or the alarm clocks, they just get louder and lighter. And this is what's happening with global warming. This is what's happening with the chaos around the world. So this phenomenology applies not just individually, but collectively. So this is incredibly important. And believe it or not, in, in the Tibetan Buddhist um, kind of pantheon of skillful means, there are actually practices that are designed to cultivate this level of coincidence or what's referred to as tendril, literally auspicious coincidence. And so at the highest levels, and again, I can refer you to um, Trungpa Rinpoche's beautiful book called Glimpses of Abhidharma, where in the final chapter, he talks about how it is that at these more elevated levels, karma is fundamentally replaced with auspicious coincidence. Karma is replaced with tendril. So oh, then the, wow. world continues to, the world continues to play itself out but it's no longer driven by um, karmic impetus. It's, it's driven more by the spontaneous natural play and display of mind and, and reality. And so when you have these experiences um, without inflating ourselves around them, this is really good. I mean, it means that you are in sync with reality. And, and this is why at the highest levels, at the very highest levels, to show you how far this goes, this is why great spiritual masters literally operate in the world without intentionality, without will as we know it, because at these highest levels, which is suggested by these kind of entry-level experiences, um, you, you engage in your world through spontaneous presence. There's no intention involved. There's just dance. There's just play. Um, Lila, Ropa, there's just the dance of the universe, but the difference is you let the universe lead the dance. You no longer lead it. And, and this is when you um, become a spokesman or a spokesperson for reality. You, you, quote unquote, don't even exist anymore. You're simply acting spontaneously as a spokesperson for reality. And, and so these types of experiences, if I'm understanding what you're saying, are profound glimpses of the way the awakened ones lead all the time. They they don't come into these worlds like Trung Rinpoche. He came to the West. He didn't have some kind of master plan for how to deal with the barbarians in the Western world. He came to dance, and he let reality lead the dance. And therefore, um, reality at this is this deep non-dualistic level always quote unquote. And don't get too anthropomorphic here dictated, commanded, told him what to do. Because at that point, he was completely in intercourse and union with that reality and was dictated by its expression. So this is a, a really deep, beautiful way to come full closure that, that when you wake up, karma is replaced with auspicious coincidence. When you have these glimpses, it means, man, you are on the right track. So something like that. <laughs> That's cool. Wow, that's beautiful. Um, yeah, that's kind of what the experience is like. It feels like you're just basically reality. <laughs> it's it. But there's that's the dance. It. The dancing quality is what I like about it. The play, the play, the play, the lila, the, that kind of like tantric playing with it, playing with it. For me, there's like a giddy, happy kind of just like bouncing along and seeing what new thing is being presented and moving right. with that. I mean, that, that energy is just so yep. delightful to me, uh, and I'm so grateful for it.
It's it's literally that some of the the specific terminology in the tantric literature is referred to quite beautifully as entering the action, and um, it's a mm -hmm. it's a deep non-dual wow. tantric way of talking about flow, um, but not at just a psychological level. I mean, this is real flow. This is absolute resonance entrainment with reality and therefore this it becomes utterly effortless you don't have to yeah, do a exactly. thing reality kind of commands so to speak appropriate action and and that's the way the buddhas live i mean this is this is the dimension that's completely inconceivable from a referential dualistic egoic perspective this is the domain in which the buddhas function and therefore it's just utterly defined by ineffable mystery and magic and beauty and so good for you, my friend. I mean, that's that's pretty sweet. That's a great space. So wait, my friend, as we start to close this up, you're so generous with your time. Um, I I have come to ask my guests recently, um, I hope it's okay, a kind of a question I used to ask and then I got too shy. Um, the following question, because some people um, may never encounter you again or you may die tomorrow. Um, and so what I, I started asking you this question, and I'm asking it again, is if you were to realize that you only had a minute left to live, what would be the irreducible expression of your own teaching? What would you share with us? So you're, you're about to die. What would you leave us with? Wow. Um... I mean, all the things would be so simple. It would just be about, I mean, I guess, yeah, I would say that the most important thing we can do in our life is is to kind of be present for it, to hold space, to be in presence. Like I've realized that I don't need them. When I'm helping people the most, I'm not, I'm not trying to fix them. I'm not implementing a strategy. I'm actually just being present with them yeah. whether it's my friends whether it's with students whether it's whatever it is like and it's just that being in presence and trusting that that's enough has been this that's been the biggest transformer of my life because i come from a place of having try so hard or think so hard or strategize or do this and and i just learned again and again and again that just simple being in presence with another human being with my life is is the kind of greatest thing we can give back to life. And that actually it is an act of generosity, the yeah. ultimate act of generosity. And yeah. I know that sounds like maybe a cliche or maybe super obvious, but it's just, that would be the thing I would tell people. Yeah. Because uh, it's what I've had, it's been the biggest learning curve for me. Yeah, beautifully said, my friend. And as you know, the more advanced the practice they're teaching, the simpler it gets. Um, oh, and that's so definitely true too. Yeah, presence. It blows my mind. It's like Isn't you it? more you start to see how more like a simpler and simpler rule is applicable to a greater and greater number of phenomenon. <laughs> it's like, exactly. oh, okay. Beautiful. And and also, you know, um, and, and that's a very important uh, teaching in my opinion, Jeff, because in this age of tremendous complexity, um, fundamentally reality is extraordinarily simple. Complexity doesn't stand a chance against simplicity. Exactly. And, and so, um, exactly. fundamentally, this is why you have to surrender to it. You can't outsmart it. You can't exactly. outthink it. 
you die into it, you surrender into it, and then you find yourself with this ultimate presence in both senses. So um, really, really well said. And so as we, as we start to close up, how can people learn more about you? How can they support you? What, what are you working on now that we can look forward to? Um, so this is the time to set up your lemonade stand for us because we, we, part of our charter here is to cross-pollinate. I'm just a facilitator. Um, with incredible luminaries like yourself. And so I, I really, I mean, the great joy for me is introducing our membership, our audience to to people like you with the extraordinary work that you're doing. So how can people learn more about you? What are you, you know, um, final words about what you're doing and how we can support you? Yeah, well, I um, appreciate the invitation. I, I have a website, jeffwarren.org. Um, I have a mission, you know, it's around the democratizing mental health. I'm really passionate about it. Uh, it's about really trying to make practice in the broadest sense. And I can talk about what that looks like, but applicable and, or, or accessible to everyone. Um, so I spend a lot of time thinking about, I have my Conscious Explorers Club. I wrote a whole community activation kit that's about, that's available for free for people to start their own local practice groups. and. For me, it's sort of like I try to take this idea of if I, what would it actually look like to transform the world? Like I take it seriously, like what would it look like? Okay, what can I do? Well, what I can do is I'm a professional communicator and I have a way with language. I can articulate a meta framework of practice that no matter who you are, no matter what tradition you come from, or most importantly, from outside of tradition, just a regular person, whether you're an athlete, you're an artist, you're a banker, whatever you are, you can find a way into practice through this prism that honors the practices you're already doing, because we already do all these practices in our lives. Like we have a particular communication practice we do with our with our spouse, maybe that we figured out that works, or we have a particular, we play Frisbee with our friends and we know we like that. And like starting with where we're at, building out a framework of practice that includes all the way to the deep end of what it can actually mean to be deeply transformed. So that's sort of like the software. And then the hardware is okay, local practice groups. I'm on a lot of apps. I'm on Calm now. I just did a how to meditate program for them. I do stuff for 10% happier. I'm like, I, I'm trying to write books about this, about how to be your own teacher, but also how to share practice with others. So that's another big piece of what I'm interested in is like how to kind of like uh, naturalize, take off the pedestal, the guiding of, practice and say that, you know what, the basics of self-regulation and understanding how, how to get settled and be a little bit more mindful about our experience, that's something that anybody can teach anybody else, that it's as basic as nutrition and basic fitness, that that should be part of what we learn as part of our kind of language and learning of our culture. And that, and so the, I'm, I have these um, weekend things I do where I basically empower people to, we kind of come together and we share and we invent practices together and then we share them with each other. And it's to kind of empower people to take that back to their communities. So I have a whole program around democratizing mental health that I, and I need support for it, you know, because I, my whole life I've done this mostly for free and as a labor of love. And I, that's how I started a nonprofit. And now I'm realizing at the point where, and I have no compunction asking about this, like, because it's now about the mission than more about me. Yes. I'm interested in finding people to help me support this vision and to be part of this. And I also have a do nothing uh, live cast I do on Sunday nights where I just, for regular folks who want to just sit and kind of in a kind of non-dual slave flavored, you got do nothing emphasis and practice. So it's really about exploring practice. A new podcast I'm starting actually, which I'm going to get you on about 
getting different teachers to guide practices and sharing with that what's happening on the inside. So being an explorer of consciousness. So yeah. these are all different initiatives. You know, I have I do retreats, I do do all these different things. But I guess the main thing I would say is start your own local practice group, pay it forward. You can use the community activation guide and if you want to support any part of that, just you know, come along. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Because I mean, I'm, I'm looking for, you know, I'm looking for community. So. Yeah, that's awesome, my friend. That's definitely a life worth living. And and wow, I mean, really cool. Some of that stuff I didn't know myself. So, you know, even though we haven't met before, I feel like I've known you for kalpas. Um, what a what a wonderful kind of um, mind meld here. And, and so, Jeff, really, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. And hopefully, you know, you'll step outside in a, in a coconut won't fall on your head, or maybe maybe it will. You know, that that could actually help wake us up, right? Well, funny as you're saying this, I'm looking out at this incredible view of green leaves and waving with sunlight, and this huge iguana is moving up this tree with these multicolored, like big, huge blossoms of tropical flowers. I'm, I'm very much looking out in this dream space as we're having this conversation. Just yeah, no kidding, huh? Well, yeah. you're 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 living the dream, my friend. And really, thank you once again for um, taking the time with us. Really look forward to future encounters um, in your contributions to this world are no small thing. So all the best to you, and I'm sure we'll have future encounters. So thanks for joining thanks, us, Jeff. Thanks, Andrew. I'm really I'm grateful to you. What a wonderful show you've got. Thanks for being such a real human being. <laughs> thanks for sharing that. See you later. Bye now. Bye.